I, for one, am shocked, shocked that the Chinese and the Iranians would be engaging in espionage in order to steal technological information or uh, virus-related research uh, merely because it might confer a commercial advantage or, uh, you know, help with national pride. I, I thought uh, we were in a world in which, uh, ladies and gentlemen, did not read each other's mail. So I, for one, am really having to rethink my worldview in light of this. Episode 315 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And we're speaking not for our clients, not for our institutions, not for our family members, not even really for the pets in the background who will be barking any minute now. Uh, um, uh, we're going to be joined today uh, for the news roundup, which is all we're going to do uh, uh, in this episode, uh, by uh, one of my partners uh, from Chicago and occasionally San Francisco, Anthony Anscombe. Uh, we'll be talking about something that falls into his wheelhouse. And by uh, some of our regulars, David Chris and Nate Jones from Culper Partners, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, uh, uh, Matthew Hyman, uh, uh, who was also formerly with the Justice Department, now at the National Security Institute. I'm Stuart Baker, your host uh, uh, and chief provocateur for today's program. Let's jump right in. Matthew, great um, report out of uh, Citizen Lab about uh, how WeChat is using its uh, its Western services to enhance its ability to censor Chinese speech in China. How did that go? So um, just for the background of listeners, I, mean, I assume most everyone knows what WeChat is, but it's, you know, it's obviously a chat platform, but it's also food delivery and money exchange does sort of everything Facebook and other social media platforms in the West do. It's owned by a big company called Tencent. And what the report found is that in China, there's already very well-established blacklists within WeChat. So if I'm in China and I'm sending a text with uh, a document or content or a picture that is violative of the blacklist, which largely includes anything critical of the Chinese Communist Party, it immediately zaps it because it knows what I'm sending and it zaps it. But there's always been a couple second gap, apparently, if you're sending something new or that requires human intervention. And what WeChat is doing is they're monitoring their users outside of China that are sending that kind of material so that when they identify it in those couple seconds, they add it to the blacklist so that their in-China censorship is greatly enhanced. And so that's what's going on. This is this is impressive. And they're obviously using hashes as a way of not having to look at the picture. They just hash the picture and then say, if anything comes through that we can hash to this value, we uh, uh, will ding it. And to do that, well, you need to, to have all of the circulating uh, dissenters communications, or at least the, 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 the graphics that uh, they're uh, circulating so you can hash them. Uh, and what they're just doing is they're not censoring the, the you know, if two WeChat users in, uh, in the West send each other pictures of Winnie the Pooh, they don't censor them, but they, uh, they mark them down and say, if these show up inside China, uh, we can immediately take them down. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and while the report says there's no evidence that WeChat's decision 
um, is the result of a Chinese government directive, there's the reality that any operator of a Chinese social media platform gets fined or punished or is punished if they uh, host any content that's critical of the Communist Party. So it's, you know, Tencent is according itself to the governing environment in which it's operating. Yeah, no, it's it's very clever because you know there's all this dissenting material being circulated in the West, and this allows them basically to fish in those uh, in that pond, uh, pick up anything that they don't like, and know that um, it'll never get to China because they'll be able to to zap it the very first time it shows up on their network. Um, I, I also kind of wonder. Uh, if they aren't using some of this stuff to train their AI tools to start recognizing dissenting uh, opinions that they want to uh, knock down. Uh, uh, the more data you have, the easier it is to uh, uh, come up with a good engine to, uh, to do censorship. Uh, and using the data from the West is a, a better tool for finding stuff to train your AI on because nobody in China is going to start circulating this stuff. Yeah, agreed. It would seem like a missed opportunity if they weren't doing that, which tells me they probably are. All right. Um, it, the Russians suffered a kind of embarrassment at the hands of Bellingcat. I suppose the theme of this uh, uh, episode so far is don't mess with the NGOs because uh, uh, it, it, the Citizen Lab took down WeChat and uh, uh, Bellingcat takes down a uh, hacker who was just indicted by the Germans for hacking the Bundestag, but who also hacked the DNC and uh, went off to the World Doping Association. He's, he's one of their best hackers, uh, but he's not so good at OPSEC, is he, Nate? No, he's not. He made a couple of mistakes here. Um, he has uh, apparently registered his car under the address of, of the uh, GRU unit that he currently works for, <laughs> and he has a, uh, an affinity for a couple of uh, aliases that he uses repeatedly and at least circumstantial evidence suggests he he incorporates into his malicious code from time to time. So he's a Queen fan, right? Scaramouche, Scaramouche. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but it does, you know, in, I think there's a certain degree of sloppiness here, but, but it also does uh, highlight, or at least is a reminder that of the difficulties associated with being an intelligence officer in this age and trying not to leave digital footprints where, where that can be hard. Yeah. Uh, but it is, it, it's great. It's a very funny report. Uh, they have pictures of him from his wife's uh, 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 Russian equivalent of Facebook account. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, they reveal, uh, or they, they mention in passing that uh, his uh, using the GRU address to register his car is not, does not distinguish him from 300 other GRU officers <laughs> who did the same thing. Uh, uh, and, and best of all, uh, his email credentials were exposed uh, and uh, his password revealed. It was Baden, which is his name, uh, 1990. And, and so <laughs> when, when that <laughs> happened, he changed it to Baden 990. He made it shorter. <laughs> I love it's it. It's easy to remember. Uh, it is. Re <laughs> 
All right. Well, you know, it, it, it just goes to show he's he's obviously uh, the, the the Germans indicted him because they were running out of um, uh, time and the statute of limitations. Um, uh, there was no real prospect. He was coming to the West, it looks like. And so they just uh, decided to uh, publicly identify him. But Bellingcat uh, uh, deserves kudos uh, for having uh, uh, uh expose so much of this guy's OPSEC. All right, uh, uh, David, um, the Commerce Department is at work on making it easier to deal with Huawei, which is not what you'd expect from uh, this administration or this Commerce Department. What gives? Yeah, well, here's how to understand what's going on here. So Trump and the Trump administration have long recognized the threat from China uh, particularly with respect to technology, um, I think one can say the execution of that uh, of a strategy based on that recognition has been flawed in a number of ways, um, and this may be evidence of one of them. Um, one of the things that happens when you start blacklisting Huawei and other Chinese entities for fear that they will continue to steal U.S. technology and or get their hardware into networks and and give themselves a privileged position for uh, surveillance or other activities uh, is that you you put them on uh, various blacklists, um, including an entity list maintained by the Commerce Department, which generally prohibits Americans from sharing technology with Huawei. And that's what happened here. The unintended, uh, I think unintended consequence of that uh, was that in international standard-setting bodies, most notably for new and emerging 5G technology, uh, U.S. firms and, and professionals were inhibited from speaking up if Huawei was in the room uh, for fear that they would end up on the wrong side of these uh, limitations and sanctions around sharing information with Huawei. It, it amounted to a, a, a real limit on U.S. participation in these international standard settings bodies, which reduced yeah. our influence. And it may have been a strategy. I mean, to give it as much credit as I can, maybe the strategy was to sort of say to these international bodies, you either have to kick Huawei out or you're not going to get the benefit of full-blown U.S. participation. If that was the strategy, and I'm not saying it was, it failed. And so now they're blinking, and apparently there's going to be a rule that creates an exception or some kind of opportunity for U.S. participation in these bodies without running afoul of the uh, of the blacklist rules in general, and that should be forthcoming. So my guess is it's a little less uh, dumb than that. Uh, this this the standards the standards body participation uh, was kind of the tail on the dog of the uh, restriction on doing business with uh, um, uh, uh, Huawei, uh, and so there were many many things that were prohibited by uh, designating Huawei. Uh, um, only one of which is. Uh, and uh, participating in standards bodies that Huawei also participates in. And they issued a pretty early interpretation that said, we're not saying you can't participate in standards bodies that Huawei's president had as long as they're public. It's the private <laughs> stuff that makes us uneasy. Uh, and and, and that, that, that that turned out, uh, their, their ability to uh, kind of force the standards bodies to dance to their tune turned out to be a lot less than they had hoped. 
I, I think that's that's fair. Certainly on the first part, it, it was not the uh, primary or sole goal of these sanctions to inhibit standards uh, bodies. That was very much the tail on it. And you're right, they issued this advisory opinion. The advisory opinion, at least with the benefit of hindsight, is so uh, restrictive and actually somewhat ominous if you were reading it. Uh, you know, if you're the general counsel of one of these firms and you're looking at this and saying, oh boy, I, I you know, I'm not sure I can send my engineers out to this meeting because what if they go out for drinks afterwards and have a private conversation and it's not in the public meeting portion? So, I mean, I, I was trying to give them credit for having a strategy. It may have just been a clumsy execution of a broader of a broader point. I'm 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 good either way, Stuart. But um, anyway, that's <laughs> that's the context I think in which one has to see and understand this forthcoming uh, this forthcoming guidance from Commerce. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so Anthony, uh, um, the Seventh Circuit. Well, let me start uh, uh, for uh, do a quick run up. The quite possibly, with the possible exception of Washington's new law on uh, uh, artificial intelligence used for facial recognition, the dumbest privacy law in America is Illinois' uh, Biometric uh, Identification Privacy Act, uh, uh, which which basically says uh, you're guilty if you don't provide a whole bunch of notice to people who are subject to biometric identification, even if there's no harm whatsoever, um, and it's it's sparked a whole bunch of uh, class actions. Uh, um, and and since, if I remember right, it's liquidated damages. Uh, there really aren't any good arguments for not having a class. So uh, all the things that usually happen before you settle a class action don't really happen under uh, uh, BIPA. Uh, and so uh, there have been the one issue people have been fighting over is whether they should be in federal or state court. Uh, and the federal courts have been saying, we're not sure there's any statutory standing here because you don't have to be injured. Um, and the, 11th, the Seventh Circuit has now ruled on this in a surprising way and, and a way that uh, uh, creates a conflict in the circuits, uh, or at least deepens one. What, what's, the, what's the background? Yeah, and I, I think I would uh, probably uh, vote vote the, <laughs> vote the same way that you do, Stuart. Uh, number one for Washington, and number two for uh, for BIPA, uh, and it is really uh, monstrous uh, a monstrosity uh, in terms of its uh, stupidity. Um, but uh, uh, the case that came out this week uh, in the Seventh Circuit is a case called uh, Bryant versus Compass. Uh, and it, it turns on, uh, on BIPA. Um, BIPA, uh, is a statute that I think was enacted in about 2008. Uh, and it carries a couple of, um, several interesting features. First, there's a very detailed explanation of the legislative intent, uh, to, uh, ensure the privacy, uh, and protection of, uh, biometric identifiers. Its specific prohibitions as relate to this case are, first, that uh, Section 15A of the statute requires uh, that uh, those who collect this information 
create a, uh, a written and publicly available policy that uh, establishes a retention period for the information and it, it, it mandates that the information be destroyed uh, after a certain period of time. The second uh, provision is that anybody who uh, is asked to provide uh, biometric identifiers uh, has to be given uh, a, a, a lengthy disclosure and uh, their uh, basically express written consent has to be uh, has to be provided before uh, they decide whether they want to use or submit those identifiers. And why this matters is that uh, the cost of being wrong uh, as, as an employer or um, as a defendant in these cases is really, uh, is really horrendous. Uh, negligent violations of the statute allow for $1,000 uh, per violation or actual damages, whichever is greater, and since there is almost never any actual damage, uh, you're, you're looking at $1,000 per uh, for a negligent violation. Willful violations are $5,000 per, uh, uh, per violation, and there's provision for uh, attorney's fees as well. So when you aggregate those uh, kinds of penalties in a class action, you can be uh, just talking about absolutely silly uh, sums of money uh, if if a class is certified and if it goes to and if it goes to judgment. So the issue uh, that uh, has has been um, uh, addressed in this Bryant case is whether a violation of this statute, uh, even when there's no loss of biometric uh, uh, information. Uh, and no, you know, no invasion of privacy, nothing bad happens. Uh, whether a case like that uh, can be uh, litigated in federal court. Um, in recent years, uh, state court has been the forum uh, primarily for these cases. Uh, Illinois Supreme Court last uh, or last year or a couple of years ago uh, concluded that uh, uh, that that uh, that these types of cases would actually satisfy. Uh, the state of Illinois uh, sort of minimal uh, injury in fact or um, uh, uh, standing requirement. Uh, but in federal court, that hasn't been quite as clear. Um, and, and this is because of this. Uh, this is because of the Spokio doctrine, right? That uh, uh, under Article Three, you actually have to have some cognizable injury in order to have injury in fact in order to have a uh, uh, an article 3 claim which i have to say always struck me as a really dumb uh, objection to these kinds of cases if if illinois thinks that this is so serious a violation that just doing it entitles you to a thousand bucks that sounds like injury in fact to me because you're not getting the thousand bucks if you can't sue um, uh, but uh, several courts uh, federal courts have kind of indicated, ah, that doesn't sound like injury to us and we're not going to take the case, which produces the odd um, situation in which we have a bunch of defense counsel arguing, oh, no, there's injury in fact here. We can get into, you can get into federal court. You should go to federal court. It's, it's, a, it's a bizarre uh, um, reversal of fortune. Um, uh, but what, what did the Seventh Circuit say? 
So, uh, so you're exactly right about all of that, uh, Stuart. So the Seventh Circuit uh, looked at this through the vantage of Spokeo, and uh, it, it, the Seventh Circuit noted that Spokeo doesn't really require a monetary loss. It doesn't require uh, a tangible injury. Intangible injuries can, in fact, satisfy uh, Article Three standing. Uh, and it described this, uh, the injury at issue here as an informational injury. The, the idea, uh, and the legislative intent behind the statute is to ensure that people, when they give their biometric information to others, that they know the consequences of that. And that was a right that this person was denied by not being given, uh, a, uh, uh, the, the, the proper type of disclosure. So there is a there there is a conflict, right? It, it, there is a conflict in the circuits. I think the second circuit went the other way, uh, but I, it it strikes me that uh, who's going to bring a case in the second circuit now they know they can get into federal court? Well, maybe I suppose we could have uh, plaintiffs' counsel bring the the lawsuits in state court in New York in the hopes that it couldn't then be removed? Is that is that the way this ends up in the uh, Second Circuit? Because it seems to me almost all these cases are going to get resolved in the Seventh Circuit uh, uh, in Illinois. Uh, and uh, um, even though there's a conflict, the Supreme Court may never take the, uh, the case. Right. Yeah. So uh, you're right. The, the Second Circuit and an unpublished or a, I'm sorry, an unprecedented opinion uh, did go the other way. And it, you know, it it actually turned on the fact there that the person who was submitting their uh, their uh, biometric information had to sit for 15 minutes while their picture was taken. And, uh, you know, they knew what it was being taken for. And if there was anything uh, about consent, you know, hey, uh, what better consent could you have than somebody sitting there for 15 minutes allowing their picture to be taken? Um, but as a practical matter for for litigation purposes, I would say that if I was a if I was a plaintiff who wanted to bring one of these cases, I would uh, perhaps look for bringing one in a state court in uh, in the Second uh, Circuit. But you know, the Ninth Circuit has uh, had previously gone the same way as uh, as the Seventh Circuit now has. I think there probably would be some natural gravitation toward uh, Illinois anyhow, because it is, in fact, an Illinois statute, and to have violated it, the defendant has to have been doing things in Illinois, and perhaps that's uh, enough uh, for them to have subject matter jurisdiction there. Um, but uh, the, you know, from from a defendant standpoint, you know, we defendants uh, usually prefer to defend cases in federal courts. So there's there is uh, perhaps some small procedural upside uh, for us. Um, uh, and I guess all of this, uh, you know, if if there was a huge takeaway uh, from this, it is uh, only uh, to the extent that we all need to shake our heads and wonder. You know how it is that something where, as a practical matter, there absolutely is no harm, there is no injury, nothing bad happened to the plaintiff in this case, uh, and you know, and now you have a defendant uh, who is probably facing, um, you know, just horrendous and uh, horrendous uh, uh, potential liabilities. Yeah, Illinois can't go bankrupt soon enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, Anthony. Uh, uh, Nate, um, uh, I dropped this this uh, uh, topic down. Uh, I haven't quite abandoned it, but I'm beginning to wonder whether it matters. All this fuss over using mobile phones 
for contact tracing is looking more and more as though Apple and Google have so overplayed their hand that we may never do it. Uh, but uh, what's the latest? Certainly uh, not with technology. Um, so, you know, contact tracing is is essentially um, a way to an important tool you have in, in your, your toolbox to try to limit the spread of, of infectious diseases like this. And you, you basically, when somebody finds out they're infected or has symptoms, you find out who they've been in contact with, you inform those people, and they, they self-quarantine and, and try to limit um, passing that on to others. Technology, people assumed, would be a, a, a helpful tool in automating some of that and verifying it. You're not dependent on people's memories or, or their honesty um, when it comes to identifying their contacts or finding out where they've been. Um, but we're finding that technology has limits, and those limits can be inherent in the technology itself, or they can be imposed on the technology by the people who build it. And and um, states and, and federal governments, uh, national governments are finding out that um, though Google and Apple's initial announcement was, was uh, met with great acclaim, um, they're finding out that some of the limitations being placed on the type of data that can be collected. For example, um, they're, they've announced that they will ban uh, apps that utilize their, their technology in their app stores. Um, if they collect geolocation information, uh, and and that has been something that a number of, of state and national governments have said that uh, is an essential part of doing this effectively with tech. Can, can I stop you on that one? I, I, that, yeah, I, that 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 strikes me as uh, you know, uh, it's it's just being kind of reported that oh yeah, well it would it would be illegal or at least a violation to uh, 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 gather this information, but. It's really Google and Apple saying to the governments of the world, we're in charge, you aren't, you cannot use this for law enforcement purposes, you can't use it to enforce quarantines, we're telling you how you use this. And if you don't like it, we're going to force you into a much less attractive use of the technology. And, and the reason we have the ability to tell you what to do and what not to do is we control the API. Um, yeah. a, and, you know, I, I, I have to say, um, in the annals of Silicon Valley arrogance, this has got to be pretty high up there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think there. This to me highlights two problems. Actually, what we're seeing here, one is is the one you just put your finger on. They control these endpoints that are that everybody's carrying around in their pocket, and that are the source of of this information, and and they get to make decisions until until legislators say otherwise about what happens with those things. Um, and even though nobody elected them until elected officials step forward, they they get to make those decisions. They get to impose those limits. And there are there are consequences to these things, as we've seen in other contexts with technology. And and you know, I, I give these companies credit for stepping forward. Um, they're placed in a in a difficult position, frankly, to make these kinds of decisions. And nobody elected them to do that. And and I put I put less of this blame on them, um, and more of it on the lack of federal leadership in coming forward and figuring out how we want to do this 
and making sure it's done effectively. I actually think the uh, the authority here is is with the states. Uh, you know, I I know you you want to uh, take a minute to bash the Trump administration, well, but they don't really have the authority here compared to the uh, uh, the states who do have emergency authority to do a whole bunch of things. Uh, um, I, you know, I'm reminded. Uh, uh, I, uh, I, well, the, that, that just really quickly, Stuart. I think the the problem with the state approach is you get a patchwork of different things, right? And you know, there's there's a benefit to, you know, the experimentation of states. But when you're facing a global health pandemic like this, that needs a swift and and forceful response, you don't have time to figure out who's doing this the best of the 50 states. And yes, they have they have authorities on the shelf that they can take advantage of right away. But there are things that the federal government can do and step in and try to do this, whether whether it's directly or by issuing guidance to them on how to do it. And I oh, guidance. So, what do you think? Some... Apple and Google are going to take guidance from the Trump administration no, on something the, that they the, care about? No, the states, the states can. Um, they could the they can encourage the states to impose the requirements. The That's right. Yes. So I am I am reminded of the the, the for a hundred years historians have told in shocked tones about the uh, I think um, the head of Standard Oil when the president said we're going to sue you over antitrust violations. Uh, um, uh, John Rockefeller said more or less, well. I'll, why don't you have your man talk to my man and we'll see if we can't work it out. Um, and and people say, well, that's just shocking to treat the president of the United States as though he's just another guy with a claim against you. Uh, um, but uh, you know, this is this is Google and Apple saying, yeah, your man, uh, tell him not to bother to call. Yeah. That's, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm astonished. Uh, uh, and I, you know, that maybe, maybe somebody's going to uh, develop uh, enough of a spine to say, you know, uh, we can open an antitrust case on you on this basis alone. This is abuse. This is a conspiracy to abuse a 99% market share uh, in order to impose your values uh, in place of uh, the elected representatives. So I, I think uh, this could end badly for Apple and Google, uh, uh, but uh, uh, instead uh, we're gonna, we're just going to uh, have fights about whether uh, people from red states are stupid to go to the beach. Uh, um, all right, uh, uh, the Israelis, meanwhile, all of their efforts to do this in a slightly different way are ending in a welter of Supreme Court litigation. The Supreme Court now has stepped in twice to say you can't use the uh, intelligence services to monitor people's locations for purposes of figuring out who they were near, uh, unless first they said, well, um, you need to have uh, legislative supervision. Uh, they got le- legislative supervision, and the Supreme Court said, "Oh, yeah, did we? We meant to say now that it's past the most immediate crisis, you actually need affirmative legislation saying that you can do this with your authorities." Uh, um, and it looks like the, the Israeli government is going to go ask for those authorities. It's it's a it's a very weird, it's a very passive aggressive of the Israeli Supreme Court. They they aren't going to say. Uh, or maybe they're maybe they're going to there'll be a third decision where they say, oh, we, what we meant to say is it's illegal to do this. Um, uh, but up to now, they've just been uh, saying, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, go bring me uh, uh, another. Uh, you know, we have another quest for you before we're going to allow you to implement this. And speaking of endless quests uh, 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 involving the legislature, 
the House FISA bill, uh, the House is going to get the benefit of its complete irresponsibility in refusing to take up the Senate uh, bill. Uh, The Senate instead is going to take up the House bill again and uh, um, has changed the deal that it has with the three senators who don't like that bill. They're going to allow them to offer uh, some amendments, if I understand it, uh, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. uh, And uh, if those amendments amendments fail, there'll be a vote on the House bill. And my guess is the bill will pass. And the question is whether the president will sign it. Yeah, that's right, Stuart. And, uh, you know, the the amendments being offered up are the the Rand Paul amendment, where he says he doesn't want FISA to apply to U.S. citizens. Uh, There's an amendment uh, offered by Senators Mike Lee and Patrick Leahy, uh, wanting to strengthen legal protections for targets of surveillance. And then there's another amendment being offered by Senator Wyden and Steve Daines in Montana, wanting to shield Americans' internet browsing history. What I think is interesting about these, well, at least those last two amendments, is they're bipartisan. So there are, there are people on both sides of the aisle that are looking to restrict FISA collection in various ways. And the question is, uh, are those any of those amendments going to get the 60 votes needed to attach to the final bill? And I, I think it's unlikely. I suspected the bill will go to the president looking a lot like the House version. Yeah, I, you know, Mitch McConnell can usually count. And and so he's just he he thinks he's going to get this through. We'll see. You never know what the, what the, the vote down on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue is going to be. And, and that's probably uh, uh, going to be the last uh, uh, cliffhanger. It does does President Trump at, at, at the last minute because of something he heard on uh, uh, Fox News decide to veto the negotiated bill that uh, Bill Barr uh, was able to reach agreement with the House on? Uh, and we'll just have to see. Uh, so, uh, Matthew, da- David, Nate, uh, um, everybody is is doing health hacking now. Uh, Iran is going after the WHO, along with probably everybody else, and everybody is going after any uh, uh, researcher trying to figure out what's going on with the coronavirus. Uh, anybody want to offer thoughts about uh, whether there's a broader lesson to be learned from these facts? <laughs> Well, I, for one, am shocked, shocked that the Chinese and the Iranians would be engaging in espionage in order to steal technological information or uh, virus-related research uh, merely because it might confer a commercial advantage or, uh, you know, help with national pride. I I thought uh, we were in a world in which uh, ladies and gentlemen did not read each other's mail. And so I, for one, am really having to rethink my worldview in light of this. Do you think uh, that uh, it would be reasonable to adopt a rule that says uh, you cannot patent? Um, uh, <laughs> if you stole, we won't, recogni- we won't recognize a patent if you if you w- were first to file because you stole the research. Um, I'm not sure that isn't already something that might actually be used to um, in a. Well, you're 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 the expert, aren't you? <laughs> By no means, although I used to hang around with people who were expert. Um, I mean, it, you can easily imagine an equitable type of claim uh, along those lines just because the technology was actually first discovered earlier by whoever was the victim of the theft. Um, so yeah, I, I would expect to see. Yeah, I thought, I, 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 I thought that, that first to file was now the rule, so I, 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 as opposed to first to yeah, And I, I, I want to uh, disclaim very, very profoundly any real knowledge of, uh, <clears throat> of patent law. Let me assure you. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Uh, uh, sounds good. So um, there's a copyright uh, lawsuit filed by Apple that is really quite interesting. They filed it. Uh, the, the, the company they filed it against, Corellium, uh, allows you to write basically you, to create virtual iPhones on a computer. Uh, and uh, the virtual phone works the way the iPhone does. And if you want to find security flaws, if you want to look for ways to crack it, uh, um, it, then this is a good cheap way to do it because otherwise you're going to spend a thousand bucks just to work on one phone uh, and you're going to sign up to a a license that says you won't do any of those things. Uh, um, And so Corellium has been very popular with people who do security research. um, And Apple has now opened a lawsuit claiming that uh, this is a violation of Apple's copyright because it exposes and uses uh, Apple's code, um, which I suspect it does, to tell the truth. And uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is a draconian law with massive damages for people who break uh, encryption in order to steal copyrighted uh, uh, material, um, uh, mainly aimed at people who broke DVD encryption, but now being used uh, for other purposes, um, is the core of their argument. And recently, rather interestingly, they have started subpoenaing anybody who tweeted anything nice about Corellium, um, saying, we think your company must be using it. And that would make you, uh, though they don't quite say this, uh, I think that's the implication, that would make you next in line for our DMCA lawsuits, because if you're using it, you're probably engaged in a violation of the DMCA as well. That, I, I assume, is what's going on. So this is an effort on the part of Apple one, to shut down Corellium, uh, and then if that doesn't work, to, to deter all of their customers. That's, that's how I uh, see this uh, uh, lawsuit. Uh, one of the things that I thought was interesting is one of the people they went after early is the owner, uh, it's a big company, L3 Harris, uh, that owns a company called Azimuth, which is apparently one of the biggest and spookiest of the people who uh, develop tools to break into uh, 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 phones. And the reason you haven't heard about them the way you've heard about NSO is it looks like they work mainly for governments in the five eyes. So they uh, 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 they have not um, had their tools misused in the same way that, that others have. Uh, but that means that what Apple's doing is trying to shut down the pipeline that national security folks are using to break into the phones of, uh, of terrorists and others, uh, uh, which I think gives the U.S. government an interest in this lawsuit. I, if, if, if I were in the Justice Department today, I'd be saying, why don't we intervene and say this subpoena ought to be quashed? In fact, the whole lawsuit ought to go away because the reason that this is uh, uh, being used is for the perfectly good uh, purpose of trying to stop terrorism and crime. Uh, but that's, uh, so that's, it, it, it'll be an interesting t- thing to watch play out. Uh, and uh, uh, I think there's a lot going on uh, in the background. Maybe I'm completely wrong about everybody's motivations here, but it's going to be a fun thing to watch. China has a new attack tool. 
you know, I, I, I read that story a couple of times. I think what they're really saying is China has a new attack tool that it mostly uses in Southeast Asia. Is that right, Matthew? Yeah, they've been focusing on countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, Australia. So, um, you know, just trying to get a better read on what the regional players are doing. And it makes sense given that China's ramping up uh, military expansion in the South China Sea area. Yep. Yep. And, um, you know, after I expressed uh, uh, a sort of uh, sympathy as one lost 17-year-old to another uh, for the CEO of Banjo, turns out, uh, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is the age of doxing and uh, um, uh, cancel culture. So he has left uh, 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 Banjo and no longer is affiliated with them uh, for the things he did when he was 17, uh, uh, which were you know, shocking and uh, um, appalling and bad judgment, but, uh, you know, that's what 17-year-olds do. Uh, and finally, um, uh, I, I, I labeled this in the show notes, uh, where is Jean-Paul Sartre when you need him? Uh, the, there's a fight over authenticity between Twitter and the State Department. The State Department said there was a whole bunch of inauthentic action uh, uh, reflecting Chinese values on uh, uh, Twitter. And Twitter, in the first thing, I, this is the first time I've ever seen this, said, uh, yeah, it's not as inauthentic as you think. Uh, um, and maybe it's just, you know, uh, there's nothing to be lost in Silicon Valley disagreeing with the uh, Trump State Department. Uh, 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 or maybe Twitter has better information than the State Department does, uh, which is likely. Um, uh, and so there's this kind of uh, puzzling fight over just how inauthentic these uh, uh, uh tweets that uh, take the Chinese line are. I think that's everything. Uh, thanks to Anthony Anscombe. Thanks to David Chris and Nate Jones and Matthew Hyman for joining me. This has been episode 315 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, you got comments? Uh, uh, send them to cyberlawpodcast.steptoe.com uh, or write a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, uh, and then join us uh, next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 